Hi, I'm a higher ed CMO, and I have a confession to make. I had no idea how far behind higher ed was on MarTech until I read the 2022 Simpson Scarborough CMO survey. Total mind blown reading that survey. So I hope you enjoyed this episode with our guest, Jason Simon, CEO of Simpson Scarborough. Sessions of a Higher Ed CMO, the podcast designed for higher education marketers. I'm your host, Jamie Hunt, and I am so excited to have this opportunity to share insights and inspiration. With Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO, I'm designing a different kind of podcasting experience. With each episode, I'll be bringing in a guest for a deep dive into the challenges and joys we all face in higher education marketing. After each episode, you can join the conversation on Twitter by using the hashtag HigherEdCMO. I would love to see this become like a book club, but for a podcast. And be sure to follow me on Twitter at at JamieHuntIMC, that's J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C, for more opportunities to connect. I am here with Jason Simon, who's the CEO of Simpson Scarborough, and he just shared with me that he has 25 years of experience in higher education, and I am so thrilled to have him here today to talk to us a little bit about the CMO survey that Simpson Scarborough did um, and does, is it annually? Every other year. Every other year. Every other year. So, uh, Jason, tell me a little bit about when you started doing the survey, like what was the impetus to do the survey? Well, I think we started in 2014 was the first time that we did it. And um, we would constantly get questions from our clients around essentially benchmarking information, you know, how much are other schools spending on this? And, you know, how big is the staff at the school? And, um, you know, are these people... Uh, do they report to the president? Do they report to advancement? Do they report to enrollment? Um, what functions do they have underneath them? And we could only sort of anecdotally be able to say that based on the clients that we were working with, you know, and, and had recently. And then one thing I think that we were intuiting is it was changing pretty, pretty regularly. And um, so this was uh, started in 2014, really just as a way to begin to have some of that benchmark data and serve the industry to give a sense of how things are are changing. And um, and the study has really kind of grown um, and taken a, a life of its own in terms of like the kinds of questions that we ask. Um, we're in a continual you know effort to try to get more and more response. And the more and more responses we get, the better it will be for the industry. But um, I think even to date, you know, we get we get just tremendous feedback on it and constantly hearing like every it feels like at least once or twice a month we're getting a request for like, can you give me the budget information for how much people spend for advertising? And can you break it down for schools that look like us? Because somebody's trying to use it to go make a case for something or another. So I was struck by this survey that there was this big jump in the number of CMOs who are now serving on cabinet. 
Why do you think more universities have shifted to including the CMO at the cabinet level discussions? Yeah, I think that that is a it's a great finding and like one of those big things that sort of jumped out and in, in changing from 2019 to 2021, which is when we did the last study, collected data. Um, it went from less than 50 percent to, to almost 65 percent that report directly to their um, chancellor or their, their president. And we also saw really, really significant growth of the number of those positions that are in cabinet roles, right? So serve on the cabinet. Um, and those things go hand in hand, but they, they also aren't always necessarily the same. So, you know, you may have a CMO or a CCO or an AVP that isn't necessarily on the cabinet, but the number of cabinet, um, uh, the number of people that served on the cabinet jumped from less than 60% to greater to almost 75% um, from 2014 to 2021. And so big, big, big growth there. I think that, you know, there, there are a few things um, that are contributing to that. Um, most certainly it's like kind of the environment that we're in, you know, and I think that because of things and uh, constant conversation around things like the demographic cliff, cliff, the push for additional revenue, the declines in state funding, um, all the questions around the value of higher ed that um, and debt and student loan debt that are out there that are a part of the um, uh, the sort of the public discourse right now. Big pressure from boards, more and more um, uh, folks, you know, coming from uh, corporate backgrounds that are sitting on our boards and are really that really know and understand the value of of marketing. Um, I think those things have contributed certainly to the rise of the uh, to the rise of the CMO and the advancement of that leadership position. But I also think you know there there are a few things that even within the last two years and in COVID um, and some of the things that have been around race and, uh, and inclusion and equity um, and sort of the constant pendulum of crisis communications and issues management that all the institutions have dealt with too, have moved all of these positions to essentially being, you know, the leadership's right-hand person where, you know, before it may have been academic issues or financial issues. Now the thing that the president and chancellors are hit with just constantly is a need to be able to effectively communicate and be informed to make decisions, whether those decisions are day-to-day -day decisions or they're really, really long-term strategic decisions around operating the university. And, you know, marketing, I think, has really, um, marketing communications has really inserted itself in, in a really valued way there. Um, I think the other thing, and it's, it's, it's important to add, you know, there also have been a lot of really wonderful professionals who are busting their butt and making their voice heard um, and have been doing so for a really long time that are finally being listened to. Um, you know, they're the senior most people on their campuses or, you know, they're coming with a wealth of experience and proven track records. Um, and, uh, you know, those people have a big, big voice in our industry now. They're not just seen as, you know, the folks who know how to communicate or write a press release or deal with the media or, you know, any any number of those things. They they really are seen as being 
of strategic value. And I didn't warn you that um, I used to be a journalist, so I will do side quests on these questions just to warn you a little bit about that. But one of the things that you mentioned was this idea of the COVID and the racial reckoning and all of these sort of crisis communications bringing the CMO to the forefront in the mind of presidents and chancellors. Do you think that that is something, would we be at this point if that hadn't happened? Would we be um, positioned to be at this leadership table or we just have seen these little small incremental gains in um, the number of us at this, at the uh, leadership table? I, I, I think that we would have wound up here. Um, I think that that is the trajectory that we have seen happening in the industry. I think the data in the CMO study bears that out. But I think that COVID and the issues around social justice and issues management and crisis communications have accelerated it and it happened faster. And, um, and, it, and it broke down some barriers and silos that may have existed before in, in positive ways. Um, some of those are that substantive issues are actually now being discussed with the right people in the room, right? And so when we talk about issues of inclusion, you know, it's not like all the decisions are being made over here and then we're talking about how to communicate it. It's a little bit more where, you know, the, the marketing communications professionals are asking tough questions like, what are our values? What are we standing for? And let's figure that out before we, and determine what we're doing of substance before we make decisions about how we're communicating about it, right? And um, I, I think that that council uh, has been really, really valued and important. Um, but I think that I think that you know that, that is one of the challenges that um, previously I, I think was a struggle on on uh, colleges and univer for colleges and universities was like this pendulum between like, are we a marketing shop or are we a communications and media shop? And, um, you know, I see it all the time in the way that the CMO positions, job descriptions and the search firms are writing the jobs. And they tend to be, you know, they either lean one way or another, or even worse, they're assuming that like somebody can do all of those things and that they're an expert in all of those things. And um, I think that that's the rare person um, who has that level of expertise. And, um, you know, so I think that I think that I think that COVID and, and, and certainly the need to be better communicators has has accelerated it. Um, but I think we also are becoming more professional just in, in general. Yeah, I think there's a lot of value to having the CMO ask some of those tough questions. Um, I see us as in a way ombudsman for our audiences like we we can see those conversations happening in real time on social media and when covid first hit i remember sort of everybody turning to me and saying what are people saying okay what do we need to say and sort of this right. like jamie tell us what to do um kind of kind of attitude and this was at my previous institution but it was definitely a communications has entered the building and will be in the building for we're going on two years now of carrying that water for the institution. It's yeah. And really I think that, I think that, um, 
you know, you bring up such a good point. I think the other thing that has contributed to both the both marketing communications being at the seat, but also, you know, the the importance and the demand that issues management and crisis communications has on an institution has been um, the prevalence and the importance of social media and and digital. I mean, um, everyone has a voice now. Um, everything deserves at least uh, some level of attention and awareness and measurement to understand if it's truly an issue or it's not an issue um, and awareness, right? Like, you know, we need to know the things that are happening within our community um, and, and certainly, you know, social listening and other, other things that we're doing from a digital uh, standpoint allow us to be able to understand that um, and, and quantify it to, in some way. Um, but also, you know, provides a huge channel. I think that one of the things that has been such a such a huge opportunity for universities for a really long period is we have such a we have such a large community and an engaged community of stakeholders that are that are listening and that care about the institution. And we also have so many stories from which to tell. You know, I mean, I think it, it, you know, I think one of the fun things about working in higher ed is you can stumble into any building and find a tremendous story, you know, if, if you run into five people, you'll find at least one great story, maybe four or five, right? And um, the power now that we have to be able to tell those stories through our communities, through our own channels, um, as opposed to worrying about, you know, what's the email that we're gonna get, or what's the phone call that we're gonna get that we have to respond to, or, you know, this person's pet project or this, you know, board member's pet issue. Um, like we no longer have to deal with the same types of things, not that we don't deal with those things, but we can we can take the other kinds of things and look for opportunity there. And I think that, you know, even going back to your first question, that's been one of those things that also has really, really contributed to the professionalism and the growth of the industry is a recognition of that. I, I've been working in higher ed for almost 18 years now, and I've seen such a shift in this mentality of more like a publications office where people would show up with some copy and some pictures and say, make me a brochure to seeing marketing as a strategic partner and seeing that evolution isn't consistent across all institutions, right? There's still institutions, I think, in that publications office mindset. And I think if that's one thing that I can... I can hope to try to help people change is that mentality so that CMOs are seen as strategic partners, which sort of gets me to my next question is, why do you think that CMOs should serve on the presidential cabinet or what value do they bring to the leadership table? Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I think that there's, I think that one thing that our study this year in particular did a really, really great job of, um, of laying out was, the benefit to an institution by having a strategic marketer in these lead in these lead um, roles and you know some of them were just in the reporting of uh, what those folks were actually involved in so you know cmos that were in the cabinet were 132 percent more likely compared to others to be involved in pricing discussions right or uh um um, you know, they were nearly twice as uh, likely to have things like measures in place to measure brand strength, 
right? Real strategic functions. They were more likely to have done brand research in the last three years. Um, you know, they were involved in retention issues and they were involved in fundraising issues and enrollment issues, much more so than those who reported that they weren't. And, you know, it's funny, I think that there are like some fundamental truths for higher ed marketing that I think we, you know, it's, it's almost like this, uh, um, it's like the burden that we all carry around, you know, we have to accept that it's, that it's okay. It's just who we are. Um, one of them is that there's still a lot of people on campuses that think of you as Kinko's. You yeah. know, another is that you're very, very, that we're very siloed and decentralized. Uh, another is that we don't have enough people. Um, and we certainly don't have enough budget. And, you know, we have to spend a lot of time doing convincing about the value of marketing and branding and, you know, you, when you've been in the industry long enough, I think you get used to hearing all of those kinds of things. And, you know, my view on that, especially in the last 10 years or so, and maybe it's just, you know, becoming a sourpuss, but my view on that is like, those are the realities. So what are we doing about it? You know, and exactly. that, that, um, that burden of like needing to educate others. I mean, that's not relegated to higher ed. I mean, if somebody who works in tech and they're the CMO, they're constantly educating the engineers and the product people, and they're having to, you know, negotiate with sales on which things are being, you know, which things are being highlighted and trying to fend them off from just asking for a sales sheet or a landing page or, you know, whatever else it, it might be. Um, and, you know, we say those things in higher ed and we think that we're isolated and that we're alone. But, but some of that is just, that's what marketing is. That's what marketing and branding and communications are. I mean, they're just, you know, they're parts of big organizations. And I think we have to accept those realities too. So what you're saying is the grass isn't going to be greener on the other side of the fence if we, if we jump shit from a higher ed. Well, I think the challenges are the same. Uh, you know, the pay may be a little bit better. <laughs> um, but you might, you might be... Uh, involved in working on something that you're not, you don't care as much about. Or... Yeah, definitely. So what benefits do you, th let me start that question over, but how do you, what advice do you have for Marcom offices that are still in that Kinko's mentality and wanting to move into a more strategic approach into being seen as a strategic function? What advice do you have for those CMOs who may not even have the title CMO, but they're, that's what they are. Um, how can they make that transition on their campuses? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, you know, um, and, and not to toot our own horn, but the CMO study is intended to be a resource, right? And intended to be something that CMOs can share with their presidents and chancellors and boards to advocate for and make a case for the value and the benefit of the strategic role. And so, you know, it, it is there and um, we welcome people reaching out to us to ask for data there, ask for help or ask support on, on things to do um, in ways that they that they can make that case with their their leadership. Um, you know, Terry Flannery, who I know you've talked to before and, and obviously is sort of like, you know, a sage or the goat or however we want to talk about it, wrote the book on how to market a university. Um, you know, really, really pushes and and um, and certainly we have seen this over the years, the value of being the person who is bringing the data, the research, the understanding of what truly is our position, 
what do people think about us? Um, where do we rate and stack up on certain things that we want to be known for or associated with from a messaging standpoint? Um, how do we rate against competition? I mean, our um, love them or hate them, faculty and administrators in colleges and universities are motivated and moved by data. And if you can support, it's the nature of what it means to be an academic, right? Is to question until um, we can uh, poke enough holes in it that we are sure. And one of the big things is if you can match your anecdote and those feelings with real data that you're bringing to the table, then you really can can make a, a strong case uh, for the things that that you want to do. And um, so that I, I feel like is um, a place to start. And um, one of those things that um, uh, can be really critical in in sort of making sure that that you're being set up as a as a strategic partner. Um, I think there's some other areas too. I, you know, I think institutions have, uh, and, and marketing leaders have done themselves a bit of a disservice by focusing so much on being the brand police and, um, you know, thinking about things from an identity and a creative only lens and putting guidelines around people, as opposed to thinking about how we lead and support and encourage people towards some uh, element of a shared voice that uh, that then allows them to do their own um, to do their own things that they need to to be able to do in their various areas. I mean, our our organizations are set up. Most of them are set up as being, uh, you know, siloed from a budgeting standpoint, too. And so the incentive is there to 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 happen to make things happen in a siloed nature, right? For those certain areas, the colleges, whether we're talking about enrollment or fundraising or, or whatever it might be, you know, there is that incentive and, and you need to not police, but you need to be a champion for the brand. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a really uh, big and important, just uh, philosophical way that, that people need to approach the, the challenge too. Hey all, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Confessions of a Higher Ed CMO. I want to take just a quick moment to thank my friends at Nectar, who made this new Enrollify podcast possible. Nectar brings affordable communication infrastructure to college campuses. It's like Slack, but for the higher ed student experience. Nectar integrates seamlessly with all major LMSs, making it easy for instructors and administrators to build emergent learning communities in all of their classes and groups without the extra work. Their focus is on boosting student engagement and reducing instructor stress by building a learning community in every classroom. By leveraging familiar technology like instant messaging channels, Nectar prepares students for the remote yet collaborative work environment of the future. You can learn more about their platform by heading on over to Nectar, that's N-E-C-T-I-R.com, and be sure to tell the team Jamie sent you their way. Yeah, that's, that's really some good insights there. Um, just shifting gears a little bit, in, in the survey, I was struck by the statistic that 91% of lead marketers are also responsible for crisis communications. And that has been the case for me um, in my roles as well. 
And one of the ways that I describe this to people is that I feel sometimes like I have the football and I'm heading down the field with it and then um, a crisis crops up and I had to set the football down or hand the football to someone else, go deal with that crisis and then come back and like, who has the football? Where's the football? What's going on with the football? Um, and my current thinking... Why are, there three, is, why are there three footballs on the field now? Right. Why is the football now a soccer ball? Um, mm -hmm. My current um, thought around solving that is to actually uh, create a chief of staff position who can continue to run with that ball and I can catch up with them later. Like, I can, mm -hmm. I can run with it. But what advice would you have for CMOs who are balancing the demands of the crisis that you have no timing, no idea of the timing on, you know, there could be a tuberculosis outbreak or a fire on campus, or there's just a million things that can go wrong on a college campus. But balancing those things while maintaining forward momentum on things like marketing and branding. Yeah, I think that, um, I, I think that, I mean, it's such an important point, and I know is such a challenge for for leaders right now. In fact, I remember we did a session uh, with higher ed CMOs and leaders at the AMA last uh, November. And um, I gave a session that was sort of the future CMO. And I remember that one of the questions that I got uh, in a really, really earnest way was, how can I do all of these things and deal with the day-to-day -day crises that are constantly in front of me? And I think the answer to that is you can't. Um, and there has to be a solution and a solve for dealing with those things. And there also needs to be a recognition that crisis communications and issues management are not separated from brand and marketing. Because if, if you have a really bad crisis and you're not doing institutional reputation management and issues management proactively, those are the things that will sink your brand and sink your leaders and sink your, you know, the CMOs and the CCOs um, right along with them. And so they can't be thought about independently of, of, uh, of themselves. And that's why I think things like, you know, things like regular research, things like social listening, those kind of tools are really critical because they're allowing you to get ahead of some of those things, you know, and I think just as importantly, and we have really, really good friends, whether it's the people at Blue Moon Strategies or the people at TVP, you know, and um, that do reputation management, issues management and putting a process in place to be able to deal with those things, not crisis response, not what happens when we have a shooter, you know, which we also have to have plans for those. But we used to think about that as the only sort of issues management piece. You know, we've, we've got to work these things that are, you know, um, that are that are coming that we know are going to be big issues. Because of going back to what I said earlier, like everybody's got a voice now, everyone's got a platform, you've got an opportunity to raise that up. You know, you can't talk about yourself from a brand standpoint, standing up for certain things, doing certain things, you know, having this community. And then at the same time, you've got this other thing that's percolating over here that's pulling away from it. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's such a challenge. I think that, um, I think it, it begins with, some real formal recognition and acceptance of that from from the leaders and some level of uh, decision around where and how they want to spend their time and and then putting up support to those other areas and so 
you know, if you're a, um, a CCO, CMO, VP um, that has a leaning towards PR communications issues management, you better make sure that you have a great, great strategic marketing partner that's sitting right there with you and vice versa, right? Because the things really, really work together and you have to keep your ball, your eye on, on both of those balls that are, you know, that are moving simultaneously and, um, they're related to each other, you know, and, and so it comes back to, um, some things that we found in the study, you know, I, I think, you know, sadly, I mean, almost 80% of the respondents said that they don't have enough staff. And I think, you know, at the same time, from our, from some of our recent work that we've done, we did a salary and professional development study. Um, you know, there's almost 50% of people that are saying that they're going to leave higher ed in the next six months. That is so scary. It is. And it's across all kinds of positions, you know, and they're frustrated with the, with the workplace culture. Uh, certainly some of it relates to, you know, remote, non-remote employees. Um, but they also are frustrated that like they can't work on the things that they want to, because it is a constant crisis or that there's no decision-making to be able to, you know, effectively make fast decisions on how to handle crisis. Right. And so, um, I think a recognition of that and trying to, trying to make sure that that kind of work doesn't affect already really, really small and pressed teams, um, is just, it's a big, big, big part of the challenge. But, but again, you know, Jamie, these are not issues that are relegated just to higher ed, right? I mean, all nonprofits face this, um, corporate entities face it as soon as their brand takes a hit on any kind of social issue, which everyone is now being pulled into and held accountable for what they do and they say and their actions on all of those things. Quite frankly, I don't think that's a bad thing either. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly for, from uh, like for nonprofits and, and other large public organizations, like this is a challenge that everyone is dealing with right now. It's a reality of like the marketing communications world. And I, I, I think that this like, you know, you, you probably know this, having been in this industry for a long time, there's like, all right, what's going to, you know, what's the fight going to be? Is it going to be communications and marketing? Is it going to be marketing communications? You know, are we going to call ourselves strategic communications? All right, whatever. Right. You know, like, you know, is are we talking about like the definition of PR and reputation? Or are we talking about brand? Like, it doesn't matter anymore. It's all together. You know, it really is all together. And we just have to figure out how we're dealing with it. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things you just you just mentioned makes me think about the challenges that we have with labor shortages and the issues that come around that. And just anecdotally, in, in November 2020, I had over 200 applications for our senior director of marketing position. And my um, director of digital marketing position that I've recently posted has three. Um, very, 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 very smaller pools. Uh, very much smaller pools, and there's still qualified people applying, but not the the volumes of people. And in some ways, that's a good thing because 200 resumes to find that there's actually only 12 qualified people in that pile is a lot. But what do you think we need to do? Do we need to have better salaries, better work conditions, or are, should we be starting to think about shifting to a more martech 
um, approach or bringing in technologies that can help us be successful rather than people. Um, the survey talked a little bit about how corporate invests way more in MarTech and higher ed invests more in people. And what do you, what do you think is the solution to all of this? Yeah. I mean, let me talk about it from a people standpoint first. Um, and then we can talk about, about MarTech because I think that they're related, but not the same issues. Um, I, I do think that we are certainly going through um, a major talent drain right now and people leaving the industry. Um, more than 55% of the people in our most recent survey said that they had explored, applied, interviewed, or received a job offer outside of higher ed. And nearly 60% of those people said that they didn't plan to be in higher ed in the next six months. That's a staggering, staggering number, you know, and it's affecting our most talented and most in demand kinds of roles. I mean, there's a reason why you had two, and besides the timing, there's also a reason why you had a 200 applicants for a general marketing role versus three applicants for a digital marketing role. It's because those digital people are in serious demand across every single industry that we're looking for. The other thing that we that that we as an agency, I think, are really benefiting from we at Simpson Scarborough. I mean, you know, for us, we've had tremendous growth in the last two, two and a half, three years. And we have a ton of people from universities that are regularly reaching out to us because they love working in higher ed. They care about the industry. They're tired of the bureaucracy that they're in the inability to be able to have impact at a deep way. And they're frustrated by things like salary or remote or, you know, but those things feel like they're a little bit beneath what they really get excited about is like a team that has an opportunity to work with all kinds of different schools and solve all kinds of different problems, right? As opposed to working inside and working on the same problem over and over and over and over and over again. And so, you know, that's, that's one of the things I think from a current talent standpoint that has to be addressed. I also think to get to the, the, the second point that you made, you know, again, before we even talk about MarTech, there's some things that the industry and the partners that serve the industry also need to, to do and, and be cognizant of. Um, Agencies and partners, and I've said this almost every place that I've spoken at in the last two years, we need to do better in working with our clients. There are way too many point solutions for single things and, and institutions are hiring for that single thing and then moving on to another partner that they don't have any level of institutional knowledge. They're having to rebuild trust. They're recreating, you know, re redoing all of the, the discovery steps and, you know, all kinds of different, they're spending more money than they need to. And, um, and then, you know, from a, from a paid media standpoint um, and from a contracting standpoint, primarily around enrollment and performance marketing, there's way too much that is behind gates that is not shared with clients and should be. And quite honestly, I don't understand how the institutions are standing for it. I really don't. I mean, these contracts need to be broken down. You need to know how much you're paying per lead. 
and um, there shouldn't be any, you shouldn't have to pay multiple vendors to get the same leads. And that's what every school is doing. You're wasting so much money. And then you're competing against yourself for search terms and, you know, everything else. I mean, there's so much waste that is happening from from a, a budgeting standpoint because we're not effectively like managing ourselves and holding the partners that work in the industry accountable. And the partners aren't going deep enough and comprehensively enough with those with those schools. I think, you know, that is one of the things that we've recognized at Simpson Scarborough and we selfishly wanted to do because we wanted our relationships with our clients to go deeper. We knew we had to do more in either just in order to serve our clients and to serve the agency better. And, you know, I, I think that all of those things are really, really contributing to the challenges from a staffing and personnel standpoint. And, and the last point I'll make just quickly is because it has to be said, you know, you, we have, our presidents and chancellors are now serving less than five years and they're moving on to another place. You know, every study for corporate CMOs shows that the average tenure of a CMO now is less than three years. Wow. I have no idea exactly what it is within higher ed. That probably is something that we ought to look at in the future. Um, but how do you build a program? How do you build a brand when you're having that kind of turnover in those two positions, you know? And meanwhile, our strategic plans are like 10 year plans. I mean, right. come on, you know, right. like it, it just, and, and we're trying to pin our marketing plans to these strategic plans and the people are leaving, the goals aren't well-defined, you know, the outcomes, there's the outcomes and the budgets aren't aligned to what those goals are. It's a real, it's a real mess. And, and from a strategic standpoint, that needs to get better. And there's no amount of budget or MarTech infrastructure and investment that's going to fix those fundamental things. That is such a fascinating place to take this conversation. And I am so glad you brought that up because I think when you get a new leader in, whether it's in the CMO seat or the CEO seat, there's often an entirely new vision and an, and a desire to scrap what was a, what was in place before you to create your legacy. And I think it's anecdotal, but it seems like a lot of times a new CMO comes in and it's like, we're going to redo everything. Um, when I was at my last institution, they hadn't, um, refreshed their logo since the nineties. We, we spent a ton of effort on, they had no real documented visual identity. They had no brand platform for at least a decade. So I worked to put all of that in place. And when I left, the person who came in wanted to do a rebrand. And I'm like, we just did this and we know it works. Like our, our percentage of students on the, the SERP, is it the SERP um, survey that said we were their first choice went from 41% to 62% in four years. It was, we were getting record applications and meeting our class and all of that. There was no reason to change, but it was like, well, I'm the new CMO, so I have to scrap what happened before me. And then the team's all sort of scrambling around like, wait, we're changing direction again. And like we have, I, I think what, what can be done when you're a new CMO, what should you do? Should you, yeah. should you jump in? What's the timing that you should be looking at for those kinds of things? You know, it's funny. I mean, I think that one of the things that we, we would tell you from like a market research standpoint is just about the time that people internally are sick of it 
is maybe about the time that in, anybody externally has even it, it's crossed their radar. And, um, you know, anecdotally, I can tell you that um, one of my favorite brands, and I think they do a fabulous, fabulous job, also happens to be my alma mater. And we happen to have done some work say. there. Um, <laughs> NC State's the best. And, <laughs> NC State. I mean, their, their brand work has been really great. And um, they have stuck to, um, you know, their strategy and built a position around um, the think and do motto. And, you know, it was interesting when we began working with them seven years ago or so, it was just as their capital campaign was beginning to launch. And, and I don't think this will embarrass or, or make anybody angry that I'm sharing this. And you know, we, we came in there and there was new leadership from advancement and uh, there was a chancellor and some marketing leadership that had been there a few years. And I think everyone was sort of thinking like, this think and do thing, it's been around a little while, like maybe it's time to do something new, especially for this campaign. And, you know, it's a big and important time. And one of the things that we found when we were, you know, doing our market research was like, one, not nobody really even knew think and do. And then once you told them what you told alums and donors and current students and all of their various stakeholders, you know, this is what think and do is, this is what it means. They were like, Oh, well, that reflects my current experience or that it reflects what um, uh, my experience was like when I went to school here 25 years ago. Or this is what I think NC State should be about in the future. And so we quickly sort of said like and, and also then we sort of, you know, we tested some names and some creative things and turned out that people that were more likely to give like to think and do even more than other people that were that were less likely to get right so those oh, wow. that were even more inclined to uh to do those kinds of things really like think and do and so our strategy around the campaign name was like build off of think and do and you know because then what you're going to do is build even greater equity in this thing that already has some equity and i think that you know um if you talk to anybody at nc state now they would tell you that from a brand standpoint, think and do is the best thing and the best asset that they would have. And they would be silly to try something new. I think what they are, are dealing with now is like, how can we express this and bring and breathe some new life into this in a way that has a little bit more dynamism than before, but it's not abandoning previous strategies. I think we do that way, way, way too often. And, you know, again, going back to my point before, like, if you're going to hire multiple agencies, everybody wants to come in and put their little imprint on it, right? Like, you know, oh, well, this works great, but it doesn't work for enrollment or, you know, this works great, but donors aren't going to like this. It's There's a lot of ego. Sometimes there's truth, but there's a lot of ego that's in that, in those kinds of comments. And I think, you know, sometimes it's just, whether it's the CMO or it's an outside partner, like somebody needs to say that and be willing to say that and be able to back it up with some element of, of data. Yeah. I think that that makes me think about sort of the, my call, every college is special, but mine is the specialist. Like, the, <laughs> like, well, my audience is just different from every other of the audiences that the university has. It's like, they're all different. I know. And I saw your, I, I saw, I saw on social, you know, at some point in the last couple of weeks, your analogy that, you know, um, if, uh, if, if the brand is uh, an ice cream sundae, you know, we can, we can put the, we can put the topping on for your college, but you can't create a pizza. 
Exactly. And I think that that I think that that is such a smart and wise analogy and such great advice in a really, really good way to talk to the importance of building something up, you know, and it takes time to build brands. And one of the things that I think that colleges and universities fail to do and fail to recognize is the time it takes and the only shortcuts around that time are either um, a boatload of money that you're going to, you're going to seed it in the market and really begin to do something different. Um, or, and, and this is an area that I think more and more I have been pleased with that the president and the board and the chancellor are going to be involved and help clear the way for certain amounts of decision-making to happen in a, in a timely way and to be able to be more decisive. Right. And, you know, it's got, it, there has to be some combination of those things in order to be able to do effective marketing work. Yeah, absolutely. And I know in higher ed, we're not likely to get those boatloads of money. Um, I feel really fortunate that, that I have been able to get a lot of additional resources, but the average institution, I don't think is in that place right now, particularly those that are suffering enrollment losses or NTR losses because of the pandemic. But but you just make a really good point about how things beyond money could help the path for CMOs in driving the brand forward. Um, speaking of things that could drive the brand forward, let's talk a little bit about MarTech. So why do you think higher ed is so different from the corporate world in the MarTech space? And what will it take to shift our culture or should we shift that culture? Yeah, so we... we... Um, this became a big part of our study, the CMO study. And then we also did a, um, a digital and a MarTech study this year, too. We keep adding on these little additional industry studies um, to, to be able to continue to support the community. Um, and it was interesting. We took like, you know, we asked CMOs how they spend their budgets and how their budgets are allocated. And in higher ed, um, about 3% of the marketing budget went to marketing, Mar MarTech, marketing technology. Gartner did a study on corporate, uh, of corporate CMOs and corporate brands on their marketing budgets. And corporate CMOs spend about 26% of their budget on, on MarTech, right? And we already can acknowledge that their budgets are much bigger. And you can discount that by saying like, well, they have bigger budgets to deal with, so larger percentage of their budget can go towards that because they already have bigger teams or, or whatever. But we are talking about percentages. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that 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 is certainly, certainly reflective. Um, corporations outspend higher ed about eight to one in MarTech in investments. Um, and for every hundred dollars that higher ed invests in MarTech, corporate brands spend about thirty two hundred dollars. Right. Wow. Just to give you just to give you a, a sense. And so I don't think I think that the question of should we be investing in MarTech solutions or hiring people is not the right question to be asking. Um, and, and it's it's not a, a, a fair even comparison because if your budgets are limited, you have to be investing in marketing technology. It's going to be the thing that allows a very small team to be able to scale and, and spend your time in ways that are effective 
And I think that it also begins to get to ways that, you know, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, you can prove um, the effectiveness of your work. You can measure ROI. You can do a little bit more um, direct digital marketing. You can make your advertising investment more effective. Um, uh, You can make your digital more effective. Um, And so the, the investment that comes from MarTech, whether we're talking about software or we're talking about technology, um, I think we leave a lot of dollars on the table with what we do spend by one, they're not enterprise solutions. You know, they wind up being purchased by a certain area, um, not supported centrally, and then teams aren't trained and there's not teams that are there and intended to be able to support. And I think that probably the biggest difference is you know, at the agency level and at the corporate level for corporate marketing teams, what they have seen is an increase essentially in technologists, right? Where, you know, like really, really thinking about marketing technology, doing, um, being able to implement those various tools, having expertise in those tools, being committed to a certain small subset of those and really blowing them out and hiring specialists, you know, and all too often we see schools that, you know, they purchase something, whether you're talking about something like Slate as a CRM or you're talking about a CMS purchase or you're think, talking about some kind of personalization engine. You know, they purchase those things and they build up a lot of expertise, right? Like the Slate captain. I can't tell you how many schools right now we're dealing with with, you know, the loss of staff. They just lost their Slate captain. Right. And guess what? Nobody else on campus knows how to use it. And then you're just stuck. And then you're stuck. Then you have this, you, 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 you purchased uh, uh, some piece of technology and this isn't meant to pick on slate in any way, because I think it's a great product and it's helped advance higher ed and certainly has helped enrollment, you know, but you're left with this product that you have a 10 year contract on and no person and you can't recruit somebody because the only people that know how to use it are people at other schools. Right. Right. And like you might be in a market that's really, really unaffordable for those people to live in. Right. Um, and, and there's all kinds of challenges that are going on there. If we're not thinking about the training and the, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the ability to be able to spread the technology across a user base at a campus, then, man, we're really, really lining up ourselves for failure right off the bat. And, you know, I think the thing that has conversely kind of hit at, at the same moment has been the IT departments have finally sort of realized, like, hey, we're happy to be in this place over here you know, maintaining this certain set of services primarily to support, you know, our user base on campus. But we're not here to manage the website, manage users on website, manage the CRM system. Like they got to keep the infrastructure for the network up and running, right? And cybersecurity and the other kinds of things. And 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 so more and more of those kinds of things have got to, there's got to be a combination of like really, really good training, really centralized support staff, and good, strong relationships with people that you're outsourcing it to. There's so many opportunities, I think, with, with MarTech. And, you know, part of the challenge has been that it's um, been everybody and nobody's role and responsibility. And IT departments, I think we finally, you know, the, the marketing communications folks are finally partnering really well with IT departments and there's a clear understanding of what IT needs to help and support. And it, and it really is, you know, the network, the infrastructure, the security 
of of the institution and it's not one-off systems um you know and the challenge is that when we think about martech those systems are generally systems that need to cross multiple divisions and and areas and so you know whether we're talking about something like a crm or we're talking about a cms for for web publishing or you know we're talking about some other kind of analytics tool um, or, or any number of those things, you know, it, it is the responsibility of the central marketing team. And, you know, one of the challenges is there are very few, if any, I can think of one client of ours that has a person or multiple people who are responsible for marketing technology, marketing operations, training and support for multiple campus stakeholders. And so, you know, we place all of our effort in these like you know, single champions of, of a MarTech solution. And then, you know, we lose those people or we, we lose their knowledge or they get tired of it or, you know, what, or something new comes out that might be a little bit better. We can't stay on top of it. And so it's inherently such a challenge, but that doesn't make it one of those things that you can just discount. I think that, you know, marketing technology and, and the possibility um, that it provides for, for marketing teams is one of those things that uh, folks need to be advocating for, whether we're talking about budgets or resources or time and attention of how they spend their time. Um, it's it's just as critical as any of the other pieces, and in fact, you know, maybe even more critical, um, and and provides so much so much opportunity. Yeah, I think those are the positions, in my opinion, that are perfect for fully remote work. That's how we got our director of enrollment marketing technologies. He is, you know, one of a handful of people in the country with experience in exactly the software that we have on our campus. And um, he lives in Idaho. He doesn't necessarily want to move to, to Ohio. And that was one pool where we actually got a fair number of really qualified candidates because we were able to make it fully remote. And we've sort of decided that our IT adjacent positions are the ones that we're allowing fully remote um, people to fill those positions in order to hopefully poach people from the schools that are not as enlightened about remote work and get some of that talent in our house so that we can build that infrastructure on in our team. Yeah. And I think that, I think one, I think that's super, super smart. And I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's a great recognition that those are the types of roles that can be supported from afar. I think anytime you make that decision, you know, another place that, that you can go and for some other schools that don't have as many resources, those are the types of things that can be outsourced. We just need to become comfortable with that, right? Like we don't need to, you know, continue to continually build these large enterprises and these large teams with things that can be easily outsourced and, and handled by somebody who is responsible for the technology, staying on top of the technology, knows how to use it, knows how to support other, other folks. We, we need to be okay with that because, you know, if you've been in this industry long enough, you know that the budget cycle goes up and down. And so, you know, whether we're talking about institutional change and a new leader coming in, or you're talking about a decline in state funding or a drop in enrollment, right? Like the enrollment declines, the demographic cliff that we're hitting right now, we knew that it was coming. We know that another one's coming, right? And you know that a budget, budget impact is going to be felt because of those. And so buttress ourselves against some of those realities and don't spend money on the things, you know, building a team that you inevitably are just going to lose those people 
and have to turn around and it's going to cost you more and you're not going to be able to recruit the talent that you need to. So they're, 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 you know, the technology is a piece, the budgeting is a piece, but again, you know, this comes back to like good, smart leadership and strong decision-making. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So as we um, get ready to wrap up, I know that when you unveiled the survey in February, you talked about what questions do you do people want to see in the future, but were there any surprises in the survey this year? And what changes would you want to make for, for the next cycle, which is, I guess, in two years? What kind yeah. of questions are you getting demand for? I think there's always surprises. So that's the fun thing. Even if it's a, you know, a question that we replicate, the data is surprising uh, for some people and, and always helpful. And now it's so fun to be able to, you know, look back at all of the multiple years that we've done the studies and be able to see how things have changed from 2014 to 2021. And um, so that's great. We, we, we generally like, you know, we usually keep about 50% or so of the same questions. We those are benchmarking questions. And we're trying to layer in about 50% new questions each time, you know, and it seems like every year that we do it, two or three of the questions wind up becoming benchmarking questions, right? Like it was worth it enough that we'll keep it for the next time. And so that the survey is getting a little longer and, you know, more, more complex. I think for what I want in the future, I would say, um, one, we, we just need to continue as an industry to put more and more value in this study and get more and more respondents, you know, because people do, there's an inevitable like desire to compare yourself to other similar sized or similar gold institutions. And, you know, it, it always pains me when we only have 30 or 40 of those schools. I would love to see, you know, this response pool from CMOs, you know, be 2000 plus institutions. And, and right now it's, you know, between 200 and 300 every year. Um, so that's, that's one point. The other thing that was raised this year, and um, I'm glad it was, um, and, uh, you know, I wish that we had identified it earlier, but one of the questions that we got when we were, when we did the webinar was what's the demo breakdown of, um, CMOs. And, um, I was like, you know, we don't ask any, this is the first study we've ever done. We don't ask any demographic questions. Yeah. What race and ethnicity are you, you know, what's your age where, you know, any of those kind of things. And I think that, um, I think that, you know, just as higher ed is having, in, in, and from a student and a prospective student standpoint, from a faculty standpoint, we're having a reckoning around our diversity. I think that administratively, and in particular, you know, I think that marketing communications roles, we would benefit from having more diversity in marketing leaders, um, uh, you know, who, who are diverse and bring diverse and inclusive experiences to be able to make our marketing more diverse and more inclusive. And I think it's really important. And when I think about, you know, who I see around me, um, when I go to uh, professional conferences and, 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 you know, do training and, and um, there's a lot of white people, there really are. And mm -hmm. our industry needs to be more diverse. And I think we need to be more intentional around decision-making on that. And I think that that is one of those things that we will ask that question in the future. And um, I regret that we didn't ask it before because uh, I'd love to have, you know, eight years of, of what that looks like and how that's possibly changed. I would love to see that. That would be fascinating. And I would hope that it would 
match the demographic shifts that we're seeing in the country in terms mm -hmm. of the, the growing majority of minority populations. Um, I, I agree. I think, point. you know, I think that higher ed leaders, I mean, we have been very fortunate that, and maybe there's some other roles that are similar to this from a, a university leadership standpoint, but I think there have always been a lot of women in um, marketing communications leadership positions within higher ed. I think it has served the industry and the institutions well. And, um, but now we really, really need to be much more effective in, in changing the diversity and being more inclusive about <clears throat> the people that are recruited for these roles. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we as CMOs also have the opportunity to start to build up the next um, class, for, so to speak, of CMOs and look for opportunities to mentor and help grow um, BIPOC colleagues um, so that they can get the experiences that they need to be able to fill our seats when we move on. I, I agree. I think, I think that, um, that mentoring, that mentoring, that, um, opening the door, welcoming people into roles, being very, very intentional about growth opportunities. It's certainly important for every talented professional that you have. It's, it's more important for the industry that we pay particular attention to being inclusive there because gosh knows the the colleges and universities need that perspective they really really do and um you know i think i think again like having those kinds of voices at the table just like having an effective marketing leader will serve the institutions well and ultimately will make the industry better and will make it more inclusive and um, we'll see a real real big impact there i think that's what we're people like you and I are, what we're trying to do is make the industry better. I mean, I think that that's, I know we talked a little bit before we started recording about just the desire to see the rising tide lift all boats and, and this profession to advance and grow. And um, I just really appreciate your time today talking about the survey. And I appreciate the service that Simpson Scarborough is providing to CMOs in doing this survey, it can't be a, a small undertaking to pull it together and then develop the insights and do all of the um, subsequent meetings and presentations around it. So I, for one, am really grateful that you guys put that out into the world and you don't make us uh, pay you for, for the, the survey and let us um, have access to that data. That's very generous. Well, thank you for saying that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a real pleasure. I mean, I think one of the things that I... Um, feel really, really proud of every day when I fire up my computer and Zoom um, is that, you know, I'm surrounded by people who I think one of the things that is really, really common among our agency is people who care about higher ed and know its impact. And that's the reason why it's an easy decision for us to do things like the CMO study and other kinds of things like that. I really appreciate it. So Jason, where can people find you if they want to follow you on social media? Oh my gosh. Uh, my, well, obviously you can follow Simpson Scarborough at, at Simp Scar on Twitter and you can find us on LinkedIn. Our website is simpsonscarborough.com. Um, for me personally, um, I am at Simenowich, which is my grandfather's uh, um, given 
family name before he immigrated to uh, to the United States and became Simon. So I won't even attempt to uh, to find that. But I'm fairly active um, on Twitter and LinkedIn whenever I'm not completely worn out by Twitter and LinkedIn. So are you Polish? My grandfather was Polish and my uh, grandmother was Romanian. Oh, awesome. I'm, I'm half yeah. Polish. Um, and so I kind of recognize a Polish sounding last name. Yeah. Uh, and anything with W-I-C-Z become, you know, became O-N or went, right. once, once you came to the state. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Um, please find me, follow me on Twitter. I would love to chat with you. My DMs are open. You can find me at at Jamie Hunt IMC and my parents bless me with an interesting spelling for Jamie. It's J-A-I-M-E-H-U-N-T-I-M-C. You can find me on LinkedIn at Jamie Hunt and you can also uh, check out my website at thehigheredcmo.com. And I look forward to continuing the conversation on Twitter. Use the hashtag HigherEdCMO and we will continue to have this conversation. And thank you and see you next time.